18. Yes the Chinese have no mercy, no sympathy. In Christian England within the last century men were hanged for petty theft, but in Yuan Man I do not know whether it is still current in other provinces men have been known to be murdered to death for stealing maize. A case was reported from Chu Tseng Fu quite recently, but it is a custom which used to be quite common. A document is signed by the man's relatives. A stick is brought by every villager, the man lashed to a stake, and his own people are compelled to light the fire. It seems incredible, but this horrible practice has not been entirely extirpated by the authorities. Although since the Yuan Man Rebellion it has not been by any means so frequent. I have no space nor inclination to deal with the ghastly tortures inflicted upon prisoners in the name of that great equivalent to justice, but the more one knows of them the more can he appreciate the common adage urging dead men to keep out of hell and the living out of the yamans, which is thoroughly from here at the head of an abominable hill, and here women, overlooking one of the worst paved roads in the empire, were beating out corn, then we climbed for another twenty-five li rising from 5.900 feet to 8.200 feet, till we came to a little place called Tiankinku. It took us three hours, looking backwards dot towards Tailifu. I saw my 14.000 feet friends, and as we went down the other side over a splendid stone road we could see, far down below, a valley which seemed a veritable oasis, smiling and sweet. A temple here contained a battered image of the goddess of mercy who controls the births of children. A poor woman was depositing a few cash in front of the besmeared idol, imploring that she might be delivered of a son. How pitiable it is to see these poor creatures doing this sort of thing all over the west of China. For two days we had been accompanied by a man who was an opium smoker and eater. Now I am not going to draw a horrible description of a shriveled, wasted bogey in man's form, with creaking bones and shivering limbs and all the rest of it, but I must say that this man, towards the time when his craving came upon him, was a wreck in every word since he crept away to the wayside and smoked, and arrived always late at night at the end of the stage. This was the effect of the drug which has been described as harmless as milk. I do not exaggerate. In the course of Eastern journalistic experience I have written much in defense of opium, have paralleled it to the alcohol of my own country. This was in the straight settlements, where the deadly effects of opium are less prominent but no language of mine can exaggerate the evil, and if I would be honest, I cannot describe it as anything but China's most awful curse. It cannot be compared to alcohol, because its grip is more speedy and more deadly. It is more deadly than arsenic, because by arsenic the suicide dies at once, while the opium victim suffers untold agonies and horrors and dies by inches. It is all very well for the men who know nothing about the effect of opium to do all the talking about the harmlessness of this pernicious drug, but they should come through this once fair land of Yuan Man and see everywhere not in isolated districts, but everywhere the ravaging effects in the poverty and dwarfed constitutions of the people before they advocate the continuance of the opium trade. I have seen men transformed to beasts through its use, I have seen more suicides from the effect of opium since I have been in China than from any other cause in the course of my life. As I write I have around me painfulest evidence of the crudest ravishings of opium among a people who have fallen victims to the craving. There is only one opinion to be formed if to himself one would be true. I give the following quotation from a work from the pen of one of the most fair-minded diplomatists who have ever held office in China. The writer has seen an able-bodied and apparently rugged laboring Chinese tumble all in a heap upon the ground, utterly nerveless and unable to stand, 
because the time for his dose of opium had come, and until the craving was supplied he was no longer a man, but the merest heap of bones and flesh. In the majority of cases death is the sure result of any determined reform. The poison has rotted the whole system, and no power to resist the simplest disease remains. In many years' residence in China the writer knew of but four men who finally abandoned the habit, where opium refuges have been conducted by missionaries. Reports more favorable have been given concerning those who have become Christians. Three of them lived but a few months thereafter, the fourth survived his reformation, but was a lifelong invalid. How much good work is now being done by the missionaries, and the number of those who have given up the habit has probably increased since Mr. Holcomb wrote the above. In point of fact, helping opium victims is one of the most important branches of mission work. China's Past and Future Page 165 by Chester Holcomb. Footnotes, footnote AZ, on my return journey into Yunnan, I again called at Chutun, traveling not by the main road, but by a steep path intertwisting through almost impossible places, and requiring four times the amount of physical exertion. I was led over what was called a new road. It was quite impossible to horses carrying loads, and only by tremendous effort could I climb up. How my coolies managed it remains a mystery. And then, as is almost inevitable with these new roads and the short cuts, they invariably lose their way. Minded, hopeless was our obscurity, and speakable our confusion. Men kept vanishing and reappearing among the rocks, and it was very difficult to fix our position geographically. Up and up we went, in and out, twisting and turning in an endless climb. A gale blew but at times we pulled ourselves up by the dried grass in semi-tropical heat. After several hours, standing on the very summit of this bleak and lofty mountain, I could just discern Chutun and Yungpingxian far away down in the mists. There lay the Talutishium, also, like a piece of white ribbon stretched across black velvet the white road on the burnt hill sides. We were opposite the highest peaks in the mountains beyond the plain. Far towards Tenchu they are 12.000 feet. We were at least 10.500 feet, and as Chutun is only 5.500 feet, our hours of toil may be imagined. When we reached the top we found nothing to eat, nothing to drink not even a mountain stream at which we could moisten our parched lips, simply two memorial stones on the graves of two dead men, who had merited such an outrageous resting place. I donned a sweater and lay flat on the ground, exhausted. It must have been a stiff job to bring up both stones and men. I strongly advise future travelers to keep to the main road in this district. EJD Fourth Journey The Mekong Valley to TNGYUEH Chapter XXII The Valley of the Shadow of Death Stages to Tenchu The River Mekong Bridge Described An Awful Ascent On the Spot Conclusions Roads Needed More Than Railways At Shuichai A Noisy Domestic Scene at the Place Where I Fed disregard of the value of female life, remarkable hospitality of the gentry of the city, hard going, lodging at a private house on the mountains, waif of the world entertains the stranger, from Bantiao to Yongchang, buffaloes and journalistic ignorance, excited scene at Piyupiao, Chinese barbers, a refractory coolie, military interest, the journey which I was about to undertake was the most memorable of my travels in China with the exception of those in the unexplored Miao lands, for I was to pass through the valley of the shadow of death, the dreaded Salwan Valley. I had made up my mind that I would stay here for a night to see the effects of the climate, but postponed my sojourn until to a later period, when I stayed two days, 
and went up the low-lying country towards the source of the river, I am, so far as I know, the only European who has ever travelled here, not that my journeyings will convey any great benefit upon anyone but myself, as I had no instruments for surveying or taking accurate levels, and might not have been able to use them had I had them with me, however, I came in contact with Lisu, and saw in my two marches a good deal of new life, which only acts as an incentive to see more. My plan on the present occasion was to travel onwards by the following stages, length height of stage above sea first day Tailai Shao 65 Li, 7.200 feet second day Yuan Chan Fu 75 Li, 5.500 feet fifth day Fang Ma Chan 90 Li, 7.300 feet sixth day Ta Hao to 120 Li, 8.200 feet seventh day Tanchumonian 85 Li, 5.370 feet. On Friday, February 26, 1909, I steamed up the muddy mouth of the Mekong to Saigon in Indochina in a French mail steamer. Today, February 3, 1910, I crossed the same river many hundreds of miles from where it empties into the China Sea. I crossed by a magnificent suspension bridge, a cruel road, almost vertical and negotiated by a twining zigzag path, has brought me down, after infinite labor from the mountains over 4.000 feet below my highest point reached yesterday, and I now stand in the middle of the bridge gazing at the silent green stream flowing between cliffs of wall-like steepness. I am resting, for I have to climb again immediately to over 8.000 feet. This bridge has a wooden base swinging on iron chains, and is connected with the cliffs by bulwarks of solid masonry. It is hard to believe that I am 4.000 feet above the mouth of the river. To my left, as I look down the torrent, there are tea shops and a temple alongside a most decorative buttress on which the carving is elaborate. At the far end, just before entering the miniature tunnel branching out to a paved roadway leading upwards, my coolies are sitting in truly Asiatic style admiring huge Chinese characters hacked into the side of the natural rock. Descriptive of the whole business and under a sheltering roof are also two age-worn memorial tablets in gilt. My men's patriotic thermometer has risen almost to bursting point, and in admiring the work of the ancients they feel that they have a legitimate excuse for a long delay. At a temple called Ping Potang we drank tea, and prepared ourselves for the worst climb experienced in our long overland tramp. The Mekong is at this point just 4.000 feet above sea level, as has been said, the point in front of us running up perpendicularly to a narrow pass in the mountains, leads on to Shui Chai 6.700 feet, and on again to Tailai Shao, itself 7.800 feet high, the mountains on which it occupies a ledge being much higher, for slipperiness and general hazards this road baffles description, it leads up step by step, but not regular steps, not even as regularity goes in China, there are two small arched bridges in the journey, on the first I sit down and gaze far away down to the shining river below, and must ascend again in the wake of my panning men, where the road is not natural rock, it is composed of huge fragments of stone in the rough state, smooth as the face of a mirror, haphazardly placed at such dangerous spots as to show that no idea of building was employed when the road was made, sometimes one steps twenty inches from one stone to another, and were it not that the pathway is winding, Although the turning and twisting makes an ending toil, progress in the ascent would be impossible. Mules are passing me puffing, fanning, perspiring, poor brutes. One has fallen, 
and in rolling has dragged another with him, and there the twain lie motionless on those horrid stones while the exhausted muleteers raise their loads to allow them slowly to regain their feet. There are some hundreds of them now on the hill. This description was made in shorthand notes in my notebook as I ascended, and I find again, I have seen one or two places in Sichuan like this. But the danger is incomparably less and the road infinitely superior. We pull and pant and puff up, 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 around each bend, and my men can scarce go forward. Huge pieces of rock have fallen from the cliff, and well nigh blot the way, and just ahead a landslip has carried off part of our course. The road is indescribably difficult because it is so slippery and one can get no foothold. My pony, carrying nothing but the little flesh which bad food has enabled him to keep, has been down on his knees four times, and once he rolled so much that I thought that he must surely go over the ravine. Rocks over him me as I pass, if one should drop, but one does not mind the toil when he looks upon his men. In the midst of their intense labor my men's squeals of songs echo through the mountains as the perspiration runs down their uncovered backs, they chaff each other and utmost good feeling prevails. Poor Shanks is nearly done, but still laughs loudly. A natural pathway more difficult of progress I cannot conceive anywhere in the world, and yet this is a so-called paved road, the road over which all the trade of the western part of this great province, all the imports from Burma, are regularly carried. Should the road ever be discarded, that is if the railway ever comes over this route, only a long tunnel through the mountain would serve its purpose. We have just sat down and fraternized with the man carrying the mails to Tailifu, and now we are working steadily for the top, around corners where the breeze comes with delicious freshness. Here we are on a road now leading through a widening gorge to Shuichai, and as I cross the narrow pass I see the river down below looking like a snake waiting for its prey. Roads are needed far more than railways. Being hungry, we sat down at Chuichai to feed on rice at a place where a man minded the baby while the woman attended to the food. Over my head hung sausages my men swore that they were sausages. Although for my life I could see no resemblance to that article of food things of 1 1 2 inches in circumference and from 12 to 60 inches long. Doubled up and hung up for sale over a bamboo to dry and harden in the Sunday hams there were. And dried bacon and birdie brown biscuits, and an inviting pickled cabbage. By the side of the table where I sat was a wooden pun of unwashed rice bowls, against which lay the filthy domestic dog. Outside, the narrow street was lined to the farthest point of vantage by kindly people, curious to see their own feeding implements in the incapable hands of the barbarian from the western lands, and the conversation waxed loud and excited in general hazards regarding my presence in their city. Stenches were to rife. They nearly choked one. A little boy yelled out to his mother in complaint of the food he had been given by a feminine twelve-year-old, his sister. The mother immediately became furious beyond all control. She snatched a bamboo to belabor the girl, and in chasing her knocked over the pun of pots aforesaid. The place became a bedlam. Men rose from their seats, and with their mouths full of rice expostulated in vainest mediation, waving their chopsticks in the air. And whilst the mother turned upon them in grossest abuse the daughter cleared out at the back of the premises. I left the irate parent brandishing the bamboo, her voice was heard beyond the town. But I was not allowed to leave the town. All the intellect of the place had assembled in one of the shops, into which I was gently drawn by the coat sleeve by a good-natured, well-dressed humpback. And all of the men assembled began an examination as to who the dignitary was, his honorable age, the number of the wives 
sons and daughters he possessed, with inevitable questioning into the concerns of his patriarchal forebears. Accordingly I once again searched the archives of my elastic memory, and there found all information readily accessible, so that in a few moments, by the aid of Baylor's primer, I had explained that I was a stranger within their gates, wafted thither by circumstances extraordinarily auspicious, and had satisfied them concerning my parentage, birthplace, prospects and pursuits, with introspective anecdotal references to various deceased members of my family tree. I did not tell them the truth that I was a pilgrim from a far country, footsore and travel-soiled, that I had been well-night poisoned by their bad cooking and blistered with their bug bites. I rose to go, like automotons. Everyone in the company rose with me. The humpback again caught me, this time by both hands, and warmly pressed me to stay and on, play, a little. Great brother, he ejaculated, why journeyest thou wearisomely towards young child, tarry here and he had pushed me back again into my chair, he had refilled my teacup, and invited me to tell more tales of antiquarian relationship, and finally I was allowed to go, greater hospitality could not have been shown me anywhere in the world, the day had been hard going, we pursued our way unheedingly, as men knowing not whither we went, and at four o'clock p.m. fearing that we should not be able to make Bantiao, where we intended stopping, I decided to go no farther than Taylaishao, the evening was one of the happiest I spent in my journeys. Although personal comfort was entirely lacking, the place is made up of just a few hovels, people were hostile, and turned a deaf ear to my men's entreaties for shelter. For very helplessness I laughed aloud, I screamed with laughter, and the folk gathered to see me almost in hysterics. They soon began to smile, then to laugh, and seeing the effect, I laughed still louder and soon had the whole village with tears of laughter making furrows down their unwashed faces, laughing as a pack of hyenas. At last a kind old woman gave way to my boy's persuasions, beckoning us to follow her into a house. Here we found a young girl of about nine summers in charge. It was all rare fun. There was nothing to eat, and so the men went one here and another there buying supplies for the night. Another cleared out the room, and made it a little habitable. The bulldog coolly cooked the rice. Shanks boiled eggs and cut up the pork into small slices, another federal the pony, and then we fed ourselves. In the evening a wood fire was kindled in the corner near my bed, and we all sat round on the mud floor spools there were none to tell yarns. My confederates were out for a spree. We smoked and drank tea and yarned. Suddenly a stick would be thrust over my shoulder to the fire, it was nearly a man's pipe going to the fire for a light. Chinese never use matches, it is a waste when there are so many fires about. If on the road a man wants to light his pipe, he walks into a home and gets it from the fire. No one minds, no notice is taken of the intrusion. Everybody is polite, and the man may not utter a word. At a wayside food shop a man may go behind to where the cooking is being conducted, poke his pipe into the embers, and walk out pulling at it, all as naturally as if that man were in his own house. An Englishman would have a rough time of it if he had to go down on his hands and knees and pull away at a pipe from a fire on the floor. No father, no mother, no elder brother had the little girl in charge. She was left without friends entirely, and a man must have been a hard man indeed were he to steal his heart against such a helpless little one. I called her to me, gave her a little present, and comforted her as she cried for the very knowledge that an Englishman would do a kind act to a little wave such as herself. 
She was in the act of giving back the money to me, when Lao Chang, with pleasant aptitude, interposed, explained that foreigners occasionally develop generous moods, and that she had better stop crying and lock the money away. She did this, but the poor little mite nearly broke her heart. Van Tiao, which we reached early the next morning, is a considerable town, where most of the people earn their livelihood at dying. Those who do not die drink tea and pass rude remarks about itinerant magnates, such as the author. I passed over the once fine, rough planked bridge at the end of the town. In the evening we are at Yongchang. Here I saw for the first time in my life a man carrying a kang, and a horrible, sickening feeling seized me as I tramped through the densely packed street and watched the poor fellow. The mob were evidently clamoring for his death, and were prepared to make sport of his torments. There is nothing more glorious to a brutal populace than the physical agony of a helpless fellow creature. Nothing which produces more murder than the despair, the pain, the writhing of a miserable, condemned wretch. Great drops of sweat bathed his brow, and as one looked on one felt that he might pray that his hot and throbbing blood might rush in merciful full force to a vital center of his brain, so that he might fall into oblivion. The jeers and the mockery of a pitiless multitude seemed too awful. No matter what the man's crime had been, Yongchang 5.500 feet is as well known as any city in far western China. I stayed here for two days rest, the only disturbing element being a wretch of a mother-in-law who made unbearable the life of her son's wife, a girl of about 18, who has probably by this time taken opium, if she has been able to get hold of it, and so ended a miserable existence. On a return visit this mother-in-law, as soon as she caught sight of me, ran to fetch an empty tooth powder tin, a small black safety pin, and two inches of lead pencil I had left behind me on the previous visit. I have made more than one visit to Yongchang, and the people have always treated me well, along the ten li of level plain from the city, on the road which led up again to the mountains. I counted no less than 409 bullocks laden with nothing but firewood, and 744 mules and ponies carrying cotton yarn and other general imports coming from Burma. There was a stampede at the foot of the town, and quite against my own will, I assure the reader, I got mixed up in the affair as I stood watching the light and shade effects of the morning sun on the hillsides. Buffaloes, with a crude hoop collar of wood around their coarse necks, dragged rough-hewn planks along the stone-paved roadway, the timbers swerving dangerously from side to side as the heavy animals pursued their painful plodding. To the Chinese the buffalo is the safest of all quadrupeds. If we perhaps accept the mule, which, if three legs give way, will save himself on the remaining one, but it is certainly the slowest. I am here reminded that when I was starting on this trip a journalistic friend of mine, who had spent some years in one of the coast ports, tried to dissuade me from coming, and cited the buffalo as the most treacherous animal to be met on the main road in China. He put it in this way, well, old man, you have evidently made up your mind but I would not take it on at any price. The buffaloes are terrors. They smell you even if they do not see you, they smell you miles off. It may end up by your being chased, and you will probably be gored to death. The buffalo is the most peaceful animal I know in China. Miniature belfries were attached to the wooden frames on the backs of carrying oxen, and were it not for the huge tenor bell and its gone-like sound keeping the animal in motion, the slow pace would be slower still. Turning suddenly and abruptly to the left, we commenced a cold journey over the mountains. Although the sun was shining brightly, 
a goitrous man came to me and waxed eloquent about some uncontrollable pig which was dragging him all over the roadway as he vainly tried to get it to market. Some dozen small boys, with hatchets and scythes over their shoulders for the cutting of firewood they were looking for, laughed at me as I plowed through the mud in my sandals. We had been going for three hours, and when, cold and damp, we got inside a cottage for tea. I found that we had covered only twenty lee so we were told by an old fogey who brushed up the floor with a piece of bamboo. He was dressed in what might have been termed in dress, and was most vigorous in his condemnation of foreigners. Lem Shui Chan we passed at 35 lee out, and just beyond the aneroid registered 7.000 feet, Yunshan Plain is 5.500 feet, Hiyupiao Plain is 4.500 feet. The range of hills dividing the two plains was bare, the clouds hung low, and the keen wine whistled in our faces and nipped our ears. Ten li from Piyupiao, on a barren upland overlooking the valley, a mere boy had established himself as tea provider for the traveler. A foreign kerosene tin placed on three stones was the general cistern for boiling water, which was dipped out and handed round in a slip of bamboo shaped like a mug with a stick to hold it by. Farther on. Sugar cane grew in a field to the left, and nearby a man sat on his haunches on the ground feeding a sugar grinding machine propelled by a buffalo, who patiently tramped round that small circle all day and every day. Turning from this, I beheld one of the worst sights I have ever seen in China. Seven dogs were dragging a corpse from a coffin, barely covered with earth, which formed one of the grave mounds which skirt the road. No one was disturbed by the scene, it was not uncommon. But the foreigner suffered an agonizing sickness, for which his companions would have been at a loss to find any possible reason, and was relieved to reach Piyupiao. Market was at its height. It was warm down here in the valley. The streets were packed with people, many of whom were pushed bodily into the piles of common foreign and native merchandise on sale on either side of the road. A clodhopper of a fellow, jostled by my escort fell into a stall and broke the huge umbrella which formed a shelter for the vendor and his goods, and my boy was called upon to pay. Fifty cash fixed the matter. I walked into a crowded inn and made majestically for the extreme left-hand corner. Everybody wondered, and softly asked his neighbor what in the sacred name of Confucius had come upon them. See his boots. Look at his old hat. What a face. It is a monstrosity. And, but as I sat down the general of the establishment cruelly forced back the people, and screamingly yelled at the top of his voice that those who wanted to drink tea in the room must pay double rates. His unusual announcement was received with a low grunt of dissatisfaction, but no one left. Every table in the square apartment was soon filled with six or eight men, and the noise was terrific. Curiosity increased. The fun was, as the comic papers say, fast and furious and despite the ill-favored pleasantries passed by my own men and the inquisitive tea shopkeeper as to peculiarities of heredity in certain noisy members of the crowd, a riot seemed inevitable. I stationed my two soldiers in the narrow doorway to defend the only entrance and entertain the uninitiated with stories of their prowess with the rifle and of the weapon's deadliness. Boys climbed like monkeys to the overhead beams to get a glimpse of me as I fed, and incidentally shook dust into my food. Everyone pushed to where there was standing room. Outside a rolling sea of yellow faces surmounted a mass of lively blue cotton, all eager for a look. The din was terrible. All very visibly annoyed were my men at the rudeness of their low-bred fellow countrymen, and especially surprised at the equanimity of Dindaran in tolerating quietly their pointed and personal remarks. 
I became more and more the hero of the hour, turning to the crowd as I came out, I smiled serenely, and with a quiet wave of the hand pointed out in faultless English that the gulf between my own country and theirs was already wide enough, and that Great Britain might did not say that she would, but might widen it still more if they persisted in treating her subjects in China as monstrous specimens of the human race. This was rigorously corroborated by my two soldier men, to whom I appealed, and a parting word on the ordinary politeness of Western nations to a greasy fellow he was a worker in brass, who felt my clothes with his dirty fingers, ended an interesting break in the day's monotony. In the street the crowd again was at my heels, and evinced more than comfortable curiosity in my straw sandals. They cost me thirty cash, equal to about a halfpenny in our coinage. Since then I have paid other visits to Piyupiao. On one occasion in subsequent travel I had a public shave there. My arrival at the inn in the nick of time enabled me to buttonhole the barber who was picking up his traps to clear, and I had one of the best shaves I have ever had in my life. In one of the most uncomfortable positions I ever remember, my seat was a low, narrow form with no back or anything for my neck to rest upon and afterwards I went through the primitive and painful massage process of being bumped all over the back. Between every four or five whacks the barber snapped his fingers and clapped his hands, and right glad was I when we had finished. The yard was full, even to the stable and cookhouse alongside each other. The anger of a grisly old dame, who smoked a reeking pipe and who had charge of the rice and cabbage depot, being eclipsed only by my infuriated barber as he gave cruel vent to his anger upon my aching back. This reminds me of an uncomfortable shave I had some ten years ago in Trinidad, where a black man sat me on the trunk of a tree whilst he got behind and rested my head on one knee and got to work with an implement which might have made a decent putty knife, but was never meant to cut whiskers. However, in the case of the Chinese his knife was in fair condition, but he grunted a good deal over my four days' growth. This little story should not convey the impression that I am an advocate of the public shave in China, or anywhere else, but there are times when one is glad of it. I have been shaved by Chinese in many places, and whilst resident at Yuanman Fu with a broken arm a man came regularly to me, his shave sometimes being delightful, and sometimes not. I had another rather amusing experience at Piyupiao about a month after this. A supplementary coolie had been engaged for me at Tenshu at a somewhat bigger wage than my other men were getting, and this, known, of course, to them, added to the fact that he was not carrying the heaviest load, did not tend to produce a marred brotherhood among them. The man had been told that he would go on to Tailifu with me on my return trip, so that when I took the part of my men who had come many hundreds of miles with me, and who had engaged another man on the route to fill the gap, in desiring to get rid of him, he certainly had some right on his side. The day before we reached Yongshan he was told that at that place he would not be required any longer, but he decided then and there to go no farther, and refused point blank to carry when we were ready to start. I should have recompensed him fully, however, for his disappointment.